0: Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and happy Father's Day. Um, you can clap for Father's Day. That's okay. You can clap for Father's Day. Um, I, uh, I, I'm, you know, I love Father's Day. I am a father. Uh, I love what it means, what it symbolizes, why it's important to celebrate. Um, I also know that graduations have also been something we've been celebrating uh, recently. I think that graduations and commencement ceremonies have been happening all over, uh, I guess, our nation, really, for the past few weeks. we got college grads. we got high school grads. we got even, apparently, kindergarten graduation. That's a thing now? Anybody? Kindergarten graduation? My daughter graduated from kindergarten. I'm like, congratulations. Your cartoons look great, right? Like, your, like your pictures that you... Um, it's an accomplishment. We're, we're, we're very proud of her. So, um, we also hope for more, right? So, <laughs> um, But I think uh, one of the things that I love about the commencement season, right, is that you get all of these, like, ceremonies that come with commencement speakers and motivational speakers, right? You get these speeches, and and sometimes it's a student, and sometimes it's a teacher, and sometimes even the big universities will draw in, like, a celebrity or a businessman who's been successful or a politician. Um, And my graduation actually had Dan Cathy speak, uh, the CEO of Chick fil A. And he spoke at our graduation ceremony, and it was powerful, I guess. I don't remember anything about it at all because all I could think of was waffle fries the whole time. I'm like, now you're thinking of waffle fries right now, right? Let it go, it's Sunday. They are not open. Um, but again, the goal of the commencement speech, right? the goal of a commencement speech is to motivate the graduates and the people that are listening to go and do something great and change the world, right? You get some some successful speaker up there and they say, go and change the world like I did. Essentially what it is, right? Even Dan Cathy, great guy, loved him. I'm thankful for the way he changed the world, right? We got chicken, we got waffle fries. His family crushed it, love it, right? Um, But I think There's a lot more to this, right? I think, again, oftentimes, they give really good practical advice. Like, 10 lessons learned to help you succeed in life. Or stories about this harrowing endurance from someone who's kind of achieved what society considers great success. These are the themes at every single commencement ceremony. Again, I'm not knocking it. It's great. But... Often, the way this world defines success is not the way Jesus defines success. Again, there's great advice. Like, it's kind of like a father imparting wisdom to his children, right? You get a lot of good stuff from it. But this Father's Day... As we continue in our series through the book of Colossians, we've come to a passage that I would consider to be one of, if not the greatest motivational speech of all time. Because what we're about to read isn't just motivating, it's truly, by every definition of the word, inspiring. Because it's not just an earthly father's advice, it's not just wisdom from someone who's done it well it's wisdom that's being imparted from god the father through the apostle paul that's what we're about to read so paul's going to cast a very fatherly vision for the church and he's going to show us what true success in this life even looks like and he casts a vision for what true hope what true life what true victory and true joy is all about what really sets this message apart from all kind of the other motivational speeches is that he doesn't just give us 10 steps or like lessons in how to achieve riches and glory. That's not what he does. Instead, we're pointed to a victory that's already been won for us. It's completely counterintuitive. Like it's the riches of glory that's already been secured for you. That's our motivation, which feels very odd. Like, how does that work? It's, oh, victory already won. It's riches already secured. It's glory and hope already there. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not not one day Christ will be in you. Not one day you will be with Christ. Now, Christ in you is your hope. Like he makes it clear that riches and hope of glory isn't something out there that we need to work hard to obtain. The riches and hope of glory for the Christian is Christ in you. Now you might say, it's the worst motivational speech ever. Like, how does that make you want to work hard? And do something? Like, that, that doesn't that make you just want to kick back and relax like i don't need to do anything it's all been done that's kind of how people perceive this stuff right and a lot of times you you know like that's kind of how christians operate sometimes like how is that motivating to do anything but lay on the couch and wait like we're supposed to you know do something right right so we're we're so used to being motivated by the shame of failure or the pride of personal achievement. That pride and shame have actually cornered the market, so to speak, in this world on motivational speeches. It's all we get in order to motivate you is your fear of failure or the pride you can achieve in success. Those are your options in this world. Just go to Barnes & Noble and look in the self-help section. It's all you're going to get. You'll even get a bunch of books labeled Christian under that banner. I want you to think about this. This is how a sinful world motivates. Like, how many times have you cursed yourself when you fall short? Right? Like, you mess up, and then you just start berating yourself for being so dumb or so incompetent. Like, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? can't get anything right. I just can't win. So worthless. You miss that like PR and your CrossFit workout, or 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 you don't get that interview just right, and you walk out just, ah, so dumb. Right? Hitting home, aren't I? Because the flip side of this is that when you ever succeed, if you ever succeed in life, and sometimes you think, I'll never succeed, cursing yourself, right? But when you ever do, if you ever do, then you take all the credit and puff up that old ego like a balloon. You might say, you know, I don't really do that. You know, when I do things, I say all to the glory of God on the outside. That's what you say on the outside. But let me tell you something. If you curse yourself when you fall short, if you shame yourself when you fail, you're going to praise yourself when you succeed. Every time. Might not do it out loud, but you're doing it in here. It's either a big bolsterous boost to our ego or it's a shameful deflation of the same. But as Tim Keller put it, we, what we need in our society and in life and in just personal relationship, we don't need more self-esteem. We don't need less self-esteem. What we need is more God-esteem, right? So that's where our true motivation comes from, which again, is really inspiration from the one who dwells within you if you are in Christ. But in a world that's constantly appealing to our self-centered nature, it's hard to imagine being motivated by anything else but self. Like, if the victory's already been secured, why would we do anything other than just sit back and live as comfortably as possible and wait for Jesus to come back so he can just light this place up? Like, why would we do anything else? Like, if the victory's already been secured, like, why would we live pressing through or toiling or striving or working hard? Aren't those just legalistic people? Right? Many so-called Christians do, in fact, live this way. But this morning, I want you to see and I want to show you that if that's your perspective, you're completely missing the point entirely. Right, But again, like, where's the glory in working hard if the victory's already been won? Well, I'll tell you where the glory is. It's in Christ. He gets all the glory, not you. Because that's where the glory belongs. Are you motivated for your glory or his glory? It's a good question, right? This is a challenge. What we're going to talk about this morning because if you know his worth, then his glory is the goal, and, dr- and it becomes the drawing force on your life. Not the driving force, there's a difference, but the drawing force that says, Come to me. Not the force that chases you and says, I'm going to get you. You better run. You better get there. It says, Come to me. Experience this love and this goodness. Because when you tap into the true source of life and the light and the love that it has, it becomes like spiritual jet fuel for faithfulness and fruitfulness. Now, pride and shame do work as a short term motivator. They definitely do. You see it. But it's also like watered down ethanol filled gasoline. It'll work for a while, but eventually it's going to destroy your engine. Some of you are like, is that a political joke? Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But the point, though, is that there, it's watered down. It doesn't have the power. There's sustainability. But the love for God's glory is like an everlasting supply of high-octane jet fuel in comparison, right? And the Apostle Paul, he, he put this on display in his life as a drink offering poured out for the glory of God. And it seems like a drink offering that just keeps on going. It's like he's tapped into something that just keeps on going and going, and he's just rejoicing in the midst of it all. And it's like, where did this come from? And, like, what is going on? Like, he uses language like toiling and struggling, and yet it's all done from the position of victory won for him, not in an effort to win victory for himself. Huge difference. See, so when you operate from a place of secure victory that's won for you, on your behalf, life becomes about joyfully communing with the Spirit of God in what he's doing and what he's calling you into. And it becomes less about what you need to do to measure up. This is our co-mission. It's not just our mission. This is our co-mission. It's a cooperation and a participation in the greatest adventure and rescue story in history success then becomes about growing closer to Jesus in the process it becomes about growing in love and humility and purity and this life becomes an offering of joyful worship rather than this like distressed slog of worry and anxiety Our goal is like, I want to stand before him and hear the well done, my good and faithful servant. Why? So I can feel awesome about myself or because I love the one I'm serving and I want to bring him glory. Big difference. But again, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Difficulty is part of the process of growth. So turn with me to Colossians 1, verse 24 through 29. We're going to continue in our series called Firmly Established. So as a roadmap for the rest of our time, we're going to look at what our commission is. Say what. Why we have this commission in the first place. Say why. And then we'll get really practical with how to go about fulfilling it. Say how. I'll tell you. Just hold on. See what I did there? (laughs) Ha ha, Father's Day. Dad joke. All right. So first, what is our commission? And and, uh, what is our commission? Make mature disciples of Jesus. Wait, isn't that just for pastors? No. We'll talk about that. Why? So what's the why behind the what? And this is the best part. Here's the why. You ready? i give it to you up front. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the why. And then finally, how? How do we accomplish this commission? By toiling. Didn't see this coming. Toiling and struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's scripture. We're going to read it together. So if you get nothing else from this, here's what I want you to get this morning. You ready? Here's what I want you to get. Fruitfulness in your commission from God is the overflow. Say overflow. Fruitfulness in your commission from God is the overflow of faithfulness in your communion with God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Fruitfulness in your commission from God is the overflow of faithfulness in your communion with God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So look with me at Colossians 1, we're going to start with verse 24, and we'll read through it. First verse, though, we're going to break this thing down. Verse 24 says this, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What? I re- I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. All right, stop right there. Let's break this thing down, because what? So it's important to remember that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae from prison here, he's in jail. And he's heard about all that God's doing in and through the Colossians, and although he's never been to Colossae, this ancient city, he doesn't know. Uh, yeah, he doesn't know the Colossians. He's never been there. So, but he's writing this letter to encourage them because he's heard about what God has been doing in and through them. Okay, and so earlier in chapter one, he told them how thankful he is to God for them and how he's been unceasingly praying for them. And then in verse 15 through 20, he just goes off about the beauty and the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus. And he's explaining how it's all about Jesus and what he's done for all of creation in general. Kind of a general presentation of who Jesus is and what he's done. But then last week, we looked at how it all kind of ex- gets extremely personal, right? And Paul gets, makes it personal for the Colossians, specifically reminding them of what Christ has done specifically for them, saying, you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, have now been reconciled. So he makes it personal for them. This isn't about the them or the general church. He's like, this is about you, Okay? And he's not just talking to the Colossians either. He's talking to you, risen church, right? And so he then encourages them to continue faithful and steadfast in the hope of the gospel, this gospel of grace. Don't take your eyes off of what Jesus has done for you. Stay steadfast in it. And it's in that sort of flow of thought here that Paul then gets even more personal So he goes from general, and it's personal, and directs it to them. And then he gets even more personal here, and he begins to address his own circumstance, his own situation, and his own sort of identity in Christ. And the Colossians would have been pretty familiar with Paul's situation, maybe even a bit confused by it. Remember, he's in jail, right? Like maybe they're wondering how this man, who's supposed to be God's man, is in prison. And why he's suffering so much. Like, that doesn't seem to make sense. Look, if he's God's man, how could all these difficult things be happening? Does not God love him? How could he be suffering and having to endure? How How could he be God's man, even an apostle? How does that work, right? And so here, Paul takes the time to tell them what that's all about. And he says that he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church, for your sake. And he's rejoicing in those sufferings because of that. Now, right out of the gate, like, that's a hard concept to grasp. Like, why would anyone rejoice in their suffering? That doesn't make sense, especially to a self-centered society, which wasn't just the Society of Colossae, it's also the Society of Virginia Beach, right? Like, the goal of any culture that places self-importance above all else is always comfort and convenience first, always. So the phrase rejoice in suffering is a hard concept, a process, because y- you need an entirely new framework, and that's the framework of the gospel, You see, Paul isn't just some hyper-spiritual aesthetic who's disengaged and detached from a desire for physical comforts, right? He's not just trying to attain some secret state of holiness, like he's not at all. He's not like detaching from reality, he's not like humming some mantra in the corner of his prison cell, like, like, I am not really in prison, my mind is free, you know, it's not what's happening. A lot of times people try to put that on him here. That's not Christianity, ladies and gentlemen. That is Eastern philosophy. That is mostly Buddhism, okay? That's not how Paul would have been. He's not going like, I am happy, you know. In fact, Paul's deep revelation of the goodness of God would have given him a deep appreciation for good, godly comforts and experiences, probably more than most people of his time. Right? This is a man who would have loved comfort. He would have loved fellowship. He would have loved celebrating. He would have loved it a lot because of his love for God and God's creation and God's people and God's good gifts. You know, he would have appreciated fine wines and well-made products because he appreciated the glory of craftsmanship and the creative intentionality of humanity as they cultivate and create good things for the glory of God, even when they don't realize it. Like, there's a lot of people made in the image of God that do a lot of amazing things that God gets glory from, even when they try to take it for themselves, right? Like, he would have recognized all of these things as opportunities for worship. Like, when I see a really well-built boat or, like, a car, I'm like, praise God, that thing's awesome. You don't, know? you know? Like, you see a Tesla, I'm not going, man, praise Elon, That sounds like a cult in itself, doesn't it? (laughs) But I'm like, man, God created him and gave him a mind to do this. That's beautiful. And so again, his letters convey a deep longing. Paul is conveying a deep longing, especially to be with the people he loves and celebrate with him. But what we see here is that Paul has given up good things that he loves for that which he loves even more. Namely, Jesus and his commission. And by doing so, he sets it as the highest value of all. And he gives him the glory. See, this is all about the Great Commission. He's in these situations because he's spearheading the charge against the darkness in order to bring the message of Jesus to those who don't know about it. Follow me. It comes with great difficulty. To take the message till people have never heard it in a dark world? He's going behind enemy lines. But he's rejoicing in it because he knows it's not meaningless. He knows that by doing so, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, wait a minute. What could be lacking in Christ's affliction? Like, wasn't it all finished at the cross? Like, is this saying that Christ's work at the cross wasn't finished after all and needs something else? Like, does this mean that there's something else that Paul needed to do in order to complete the work of salvation? No. Not at all. Jesus himself said, it is finished at the cross. And throughout his letters to the churches, Paul makes it clear that Christ's suffering on the cross fully satisfied the wrath that human sin demands. And it was his death and resurrection that are totally sufficient for our salvation. There's nothing more you can add to that work. You can't. This is the gospel, right? God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and he conquered sin and death and the grave by paving the way through the resurrection to relationship with God the Father. Eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. An eternal life that starts now because we now have access to his spirit that indwells within us. And through the indwelling of his spirit, Christ in us, We're reconciled, we're forgiven, we're justified, and we're set apart even in this world. So what's Paul talking about here? What could be lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, God's desire is for those who are far from him to be reconciled to him. That's why you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, all of of you. And those who are far from him remain far from him even after christ died and rose from the grave for them they still live in bondage they still live behind enemy lines they live in the realm of darkness unreconciled and lost and spiritually even depraved this is our commission This is our great purpose, right? This is the purpose that Paul's talking about here. This is what defines his life. It's the great commission. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus is resurrected from the grave and right before he ascends into heaven, this is what he says. He comes and says says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them or immersing them In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ has designed it so that those who don't know about him get a personal presentation of him through his spirit-filled and grace-bought people. That's you. That's me. The body of Christ upon the earth. His church. Like we've been set apart and we've been called to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by presenting this good news to those who don't know about the infinite worth of Christ that He has declared over them. Like this is powerful. We've been commissioned with His indwelling spirit to take this news, again, behind enemy lines, into the marketplace, into the neighborhoods, into the classroom, onto the aircraft carriers, right? Like, this is our commission. And again, this isn't just for the apostles and the pastors. This is the commission for all true believers, the priesthood of all believers. Remember, Paul's writing to a church that was planted by a regular guy. Epaphras was just average Joe filled with the Spirit, trained up and sent out and planted a church. Paul didn't even know about it. He's like, there's a church in Coloss- Colossae? That's awesome. Let's write him a letter. It's powerful. This is how the gospel goes forward, and this is how the kingdom advances. Not through the super apostles, but through the everyday spirit-filled people of God who take his word and presence seriously and love his glory more than they love their own. When we do this, we begin to act like him. We begin to lay aside that which we love for that which we love even more. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came down? Not because we're so holy and it's so hard, but because he's so worthy. Because he's our motivation, because he's our inspiration. Just as Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, we are able to endure as well for the joy not only that's set before us, but now for the joy that's emanating within us. That's powerful. So to answer the first question, what is our commission? Make mature disciples of Jesus. When you look back at the Great Commission, it says make disciples of all nations, immersing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all. Not part, not just a phrase, not just getting them to raise their hand, not just saying like, okay, are you in? Cool, can I get a check mark so I can raise some money? No. Make disciples of them. Bring them into maturity. That's what he's calling us to. Right? It's called the local church. You do this in community. To make mature disciples of Jesus. It's difficult, but it's not a drudgery. It's a joy. It's an honor. It's not easy, but there's nothing like it. Some of you may be sitting here again thinking, is this like a pastor's conference? Like, are you trying to get me to be a pastor? No. I'm trying to get you you to operate as a Christian. Right? And why? Because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not so you can be saved, but because you are. Right? There's only one truly good thing. Hear this. There's only one. Tr- I've taught some of you before this. this. When I heard this, it blew my mind. There's only one truly good thing that we get to experience in this life that we don't get to experience in heaven. For eternity. Only one good thing that we get to do now And this blip on the eternal radar that we'll never get the opportunity to do again, and that is leading someone to salvation in Christ and seeing them grow up into maturity. Leading someone to salvation. is nothing like it, and you will never get to do it again. This is a blip on the eternal radar. Now, now is what we will celebrate forever because of what Christ has invited us to partner with him in. There's nothing like it, man. This is the greatest honor I can think of to participate with the Holy Spirit in the greatest rescue mission in eternity. And again, he doesn't just send us out to do it alone. He co-missions us to partner with him and one another in this for his glory. So that's the what. Which leads me now to the why behind the what. So it's not just to go and do this. It's a why right i want you to see what we're after here why christ in you the hope of glory that you get this in you right look at verse 25 through 27 colossians 1 verse 25 look at this so he says i'm doing all of this for the sake of christ's body which is the church Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, again, I want to clarify something. It's easy to read this and think, well, this is clearly, again, this is just talking about professional ministers, right? But the word here for minister is a Greek word that simply means to serve, servant. And it's applied to all of God's people as ministers of reconciliation. It's not a title here, right? In this section, if Paul were going to use an official title or like an office here, he would refer to himself as an apostle. But he doesn't. He talks about a stewardship that's been given to all who've had the word of God made known to them. Have you had the word of God made known to you? If you haven't, sit tight. We're going to right now. That's what we're doing making this known now go right it's for all the saints and again that term saint you see how we try to find ways out of this that term saint is not a term for like super christians it's just a term for christians like again that term saint is simply a reference to spirit filled believers it's not like a select few of spiritual elites Every single grace-bought, spirit-filled believer is a saint, according to the Bible. Verse 27. Look at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To those that don't know him, you get to share him. This life in Christ, you get to share with each other and your city, and beyond. All right, let's hone in here. Because this is the why behind the what for everything. Often when people think about the hope of glory, they think about a far-off future hope that is in heaven one day, right? Eternal life. It starts when you die, right? Nope. But again, It's not here talking about that. uh, Yes, yes, yes. By implication, heaven is involved in this. But this isn't just about something that you're only going to experience one day when you die. This is about Christ himself. He is our living hope now. And if you are in Christ, he is in you, and he lives and abides in you. Not just beside you, not just around you, in you. 1 John 4.13 puts it like this. By this we know that we abide, say abide, abide in him and he in us, to get that vision. It's kind of hard because it's like he's in me, but I'm in him, but he's also in me. But I'm in him and he's in me. There's like a deep unity that he's trying to communicate here, okay? We're going to talk more about that. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit, has has past tense. Verse fifteen. Look at this. First John four verse fifteen. He says this. He goes on to say, "Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God." First Corinthians six nineteen through twenty. Paul puts it like this: "Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own." For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He is God with us. He's even within us, dwelling and tabernacling with and within his people, which is what that word dwell is a reference to. It's an allusion to the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We've got tabernacles with and within his people at the center of the camp. When he dwells within us, it's in a sense, he's tabernacling in us. Okay. So if you're a Christian, this is why your inner life and your thought life is so important. So important. If you're a Christian, your inner dialogue isn't just with yourself. It's with you and the spirit of God as well. He's in there. Don't ignore him. Engage with him and allow him to engage and firmly establish you in his word. And his presence this is what paul says is the hope of glory and again yes his presence with us is also our guarantee and assurance for that which we'll share in in the glory to come in eternity when his presence is unmitigated fully in the new creation that's what we get to look forward to as well as well but this isn't just about looking forward to the future this is saying that christ himself is that glory like, like He is that glory. And he's available to us now. You see, it's that unmitigated presence, again, of Jesus that makes heaven so heavenly. And we get to taste of it now. And who knows to what limit that is, right? Like, we always want to say, well, it's limited. Have you tested the limits? He's pretty infinite. He's pretty big. His presence is probably available to you in a way that you are not tapping into. That goes for all of us, myself included. So Paul's telling us here that in some ways we have a heavenly access to him even now. Sam Storms, whoo, he puts it like this. Can you guys see the screen? I want to make sure. Can you guys see the screen past the whiteboard? No? Here we go. This is coming up next. (laughs) All right. Sam Stone puts it like this, he says, the glory for which we long, the glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison, is the person and presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is our glory, being with him, to know him, to see him, to relish and rejoice in his beauty is the glory for which we hope forgiveness of sins and justification and adoption and all the other blessings of the gospel are good and glorious, but only so far as they make it possible for us to experience the permanent presence and vision and splendor of Jesus himself. I love how wordy he gets sometimes, it's so good, but then he he sums it up, it says, our hope is Christ, period, He is our exceeding great reward, and he lives in us now, not figuratively or symbolically or merely as it were. He lives and abides in us now, and this is the ground and assurance we have for the glory of being with him and enjoying him forever. He is Paul's inspiration and motivation. His experience and love for the glory and presence of God is his why behind the what. His hope of glory isn't in a job, it's not in a promotion, it's not in a big house, it's not in having enough kids, it's not in getting married, it's not in achieving that breakthrough in this life so he can be more comfortable. No! In Philippians 3, verse 7 through 8, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, which he had a lot, he actually goes into it, you can read it in chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, whatever gain I had, worldly successes, he was crushing it. This is, he says, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. Say surpassing worth. Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Again, for his sake, he uses that language a lot, right? For the sake of something else. For the sake of the church. For the sake of Jesus. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word used for rubbish in the Greek is the most intense word in the Greek language for feces. You figure out what he's saying. Right? Rubbish is kind of a really watered down translation. Rubbish. No. No. Paul's saying, I've tasted the heights of the ego trip this world has to offer, and it's all raw sewage. It's waste. Lose it. Send it out. Be done with it. Psalm 84, verse 5 through 7 says this. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Talking about God. And whose heart are the highways to Zion which is where his presence dwells. You see the Old Testament verse? Their hearts are the highways to Zion. He's in you. As they go through the valley of Baca, which was a dry, arid area, they make it a place of springs. Why? Because he's in you. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength, To strength, each one appears before God in Zion. It's talking about his presence. You see, this doesn't cause us to check out from the world. The world is watered through the overflow of our relationship in Christ. That's what it's saying. We don't check out, it gives you inspiration and motivation to enter in, to engage, and endure just as Jesus did. Which leads me to the final point here, which is how we're to accomplish the mission. You ready? Here we go. This is, a lot of people don't like this one. Toiling. Toiling? Toiling. Toiling and struggling with his energy, which he works so powerfully within us. Look at verse 28, if you don't believe me. Don't look at me. This is, I'm just reading the Bible. Okay? Okay? Him we proclaim, all of us, we proclaim Him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul makes it clear this isn't just about him. He's writing to the church. He's cr- casting a vision for how we do what we do. And what do we do? We make mature disciples of Jesus, not just converts. We don't just throw a rally with a gospel presentation and just hope for the best. Praise God for evangelism. Love it. Right? We're all called to do the work of evangelism. We are all called to do the work of the evangelist. Right? But evangelism is not finished until real discipleship begins. You get that? This is about making disciples. This is not about just introducing those, um, or sorry, it is about introducing those far from God to the hope and riches of glory that is the word and presence of God with and within them in Christ. That's what it's about. The Great Commission is about disciple-making, mature disciple-making, planted and rooted and firmly established in the gospel and gospel community, pointing one another to his spirit and his word and his presence and his commission and the joy that flows forth from all of that. Because this isn't just the job of the pastor. Ephesians makes it clear that the pastor's role is to equip the saints for ministry. You, the church, are the front lines and the tip of the spear in this commission. Now, if you feel like I'm, like, berating you for anything, don't, because I'm actually really thankful for this church and the way we walk this out. Amen? I just want to highlight it because I think that's what, Col- what Colossians is doing here. We're given two tasks here, and I, and I want step, to step it up, right? I want to keep on going. I want to keep pressing in, but I want you to see that there's rest for you in this race. In fact, only true rest comes from being in this race. We're given two tasks here in verse 28. First, warning and admonishing other believers, like concerning the dangers of sin and the need to repent. That's a thing. It's in there. Right? That's the first one. And then the second is instructing or teaching them, and it's all to be done with all wisdom. So guys, the New Testament is saturated with this kind of encouragement to the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Later in Colossians 3, Paul even writes that teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom is the responsibility of every Christian. Look at Colossians 3.16, just to see it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, some of you are like, man, you know, I'm just getting comfortable singing out loud in front of people. Now you want me to preach? Not necessarily from the pulpit, but yes, I do. I do. I think he does. God's calling you to grow a mature shorter, a place where you're overflowing with the goodness and glory of God, where you're lovingly and wisely pointing one another to this gospel of grace. All of us. And some of you have even been gifted to preach in the pulpit, which we're going to see throughout this summer. We've got some people who are stepping into that, which praise God for that. Amen? So the same words that Paul uses to describe his apostolic ministry in Colossians 1.28 28, are the same words that he uses to describe your responsibility in the church as well. The spirit in you is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, and it's the same spirit that so powerfully worked within the apostle Paul. And the growth and maturity in Christ of the church isn't just up to the pastors, right? It's the calling on every believer. I think I've hammered that one home. So This is why we don't just gather together to get fed or to consume. We gather together for the sake of one another to the glory of God, right? To point one another to Jesus and to present one another complete and pure and mature in Christ. This is why we don't just gather on Sunday. We gather in community groups throughout the week, right? Right? Community groups, it's like a in, more intimate expression of this. We dive into the word. We fellowship with each other. We encourage each other. We pray for each other. We love on each other. And we point one another to Jesus. And we do the stuff. Even when we don't want to. Why? Because it communicates the value of God's goodness. Right? And I'm not saying you have to be in a community group. Like this is, don't, don't hear this with like a legalistic framework. you got to understand. We're getting off of that framework, and I'm going to talk about that in two seconds. And DNA groups, and I want to throw this out there. What a DNA group is, is it stands for uh, Discipleship, Nurturing, and Accountability. Many of you are also in these types of groups. They're smaller, right, designed to be about three to five people, kind of gender-specific, right? And so it's just, some of them meet weekly, some of them meet every other week. We can, you can kind of do how you want to tweak that if you want, but um, I want to point you to one another in these things. It's discipleship, nurturing, and accountability. When you hear this, it's not like, oh, somebody's going to hold me accountable, and they're going to be the morality police in my life. That's not what it's about. Accountability is literally synonymous with care, right? It's accountable to the goodness of the grace of God, reminding us of who he is and what he's done for us, even in the midst of a world that would shame you for everything. And then we say, well, what do we do with that shame? Right? We remind one another and we point one another to that. That's the DNA group. If you're interested in that, you can go to the next steps table. We actually have a guide back there um, that kind of helps understand what exactly a DNA group is all about. I want to encourage you to pick one of those up and you can read through it. And if you're interested in uh, taking part in one of those, then you can email us at admin uh, at risenchurchvb.com or you can talk to the Next Steps table or you can come talk to me. I encourage you to come talk to me or Pastor Dave um, or anybody really with a lanyard and they can point you in the right direction. Okay? Um, and so that's our DNA groups. This is kind of some of the like, practical what we do and, and kind of what it looks like. But I, I want you to hear this. Because, again, this is why the world's like, you want me to preach? Like, why is that so inside of some of you? Why does that really, like, I don't want an accountability group. I don't want to show up. Like, if I show up in a community group, what if I don't know what I'm talking about? You want me to pray out loud in front of somebody? Oh, I don't know about that. Why? Why is this such a challenge? Guys, this can get really crazy when people struggle with self-centered pride and shame issues, right? Think about how the amount of ego that can get triggered when people just start trying to preach at each other. If you've experienced that, you're gonna hesitate to get involved in these types of things. Like, without grace and humility, it's a recipe for disaster. That's why people don't like religious stuff. Because they try to operate in this stuff without the goodness and grace of Jesus, and they operate on the pride shame spectrum rather than out of a place of the glory and goodness of Jesus okay most people operate they're they're motivated by pride or shame so here's what I mean by that and I'm going to close with this illustration. Can you guys see this? Can you guys see this board here everybody all right so this is what I mean by that so The world lives on this spectrum right here, okay? So it's like we're trying to attain pride. So that's a P for pride. (laughs) And it's like we live on this spectrum between pride and shame. See this? And so we're trying to constantly make our way here. This is salvation. If I can just get here, if I can be good enough, if I can be awesome enough, if I can live in a way that makes myself proven that I'm worthy, then I'm good. Right? Like if something good happens, it must be because I'm awesome. Something good happens, man, I, that's because I'm pretty awesome. God loves me a whole lot. Pride. Something bad happens, though. Something bad happens to you. It must be because you're not so great. Shame. Maybe even really bad. Shame. Lost my job? Oh, shame. But I cussed the boss out. Pride. (laughs) Right? Like I got in a fight with my wife. Oh, shame. But I won. Ha! Pride. (laughs) Think about that. Like, if something bad happens, if something good happens, this is where we live. If I had a quiet time, pride. If I went to church, pride. If I went to community group, pride. Man, I am great. God loves me, but I missed it. Shame. Somebody said something to me at church, pride. Somebody didn't say something to me at church, shame. You see this? We live on this paradigm. I got a personal record. This this goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. I got the job. I didn't get the job. I got the grade. I didn't get the grade. We are motivated by this. This is what the prosperity gospel is about. That's not the gospel. That's the American dream gospel. That's the me-centered, work hard, earn your salvation gospel. That's the gospel that glories in yourself. It's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. The true gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ that says Get off of this paradigm. Get out of that thing. Don't be motivated by a fear of your shame or an achievement of pride and ego. This is not salvation. This is just a tower of Babel. It says, get off of this thing entirely and hide yourself in Jesus. He has accomplished all of this. Hide yourself in Christ. Completely off of this. You in Christ and Christ in you, and you in Christ, and Christ in you, and you in Christ, and you begin to know him and love him, and you're good here, and you begin to envelop the world in this thing. This is self. Die to it. This is grace. Embrace it. This is how the kingdom of God expands. And we're going to struggle with this to hide yourself to bury yourself in christ here in the presence this is your true hope only here in this presence is where you will find true riches only here is true glory because it's the glory of god in christ and what he's done for you not what you can do for yourself here in his presence is what you were created for to die to self and and to die to the vain striving for your own glory here in christ pride and shame have no authority the only authority that is on you when you're buried in Christ, his resurrection. That's it. You in Christ, and Christ in you, the hope of glory, and it'll become like spiritual jet fuel of inspiration, not for your kingdom, but his. And it becomes rest in the race. This is exhausting. This is tormenting. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. I got some scriptures for you. This is this, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air who's tormenting you, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's just tormented. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh were vain striving to be good enough and shaming because we're not. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. By grace colossians 2 verse 12 we're going to see this later but it says this having been buried with him in baptism or immersed in him in which you were also raised with him spiritually through faith in the powerful working of god who raised him from the dead now back to ephesians 2 6 i I told you i'm going to be bouncing around but i want you to get this i want you to see that this is not just my idea this is a scripture he, and, and he says he, he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you are risen in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, we're in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is your jet fuel, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like this applies to everyone, but on Father's Day, men, I think this gets right to your heart. And it applies to everybody, but I think that this is a part of the curse also. Genesis 3 talks about the the curse that was laid on man. And it says in verse 17, the last portion of verse 17, it says, Cursed, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If that's depressing, it should be. Right? Toiling, striving, struggling. What does it produce? What does it mean? Meaningless, vanity, dust. Frustration, heartache, shame. Sometimes pride, but then that pride goes before the fall into shame fruitless vanity, 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 it's all vanity, said Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1. And then verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 1, he says this, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Nothing feels enough because it's not. I feel cursed when I do bad. I curse myself with shame in order to achieve and work harder. You're so stupid. Shame, 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 shame. Toxic. But then out of an anxious fear of failure, you strive and you achieve, and you're proud of yourself. Then what? Pride, which always goes before the fall. Shame. You've only built your little tower of Babel in vainglory. So what's the solution? What's the answer? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now follow me i'm gonna wrap this thing up i promise god created you to cultivate and create to work and be fruitful and multiply work itself is not a result of sin work is a good thing given by god even before the fall in the garden before sin entered the world god gave adam work and he said it's good why is it good because it was fruitful his work was fruitful work is not the result of sin and the fall fruitless work is But most people don't realize that Jesus has broken the curse of Genesis 3. Don't twist this. This doesn't mean, oh, Jesus now makes all my work fruitful. Jesus now wants to expand my kingdom. Nope. He wants you to align with his work, the expansion of his kingdom, which is always fruitful. Here's what I mean by that. It doesn't mean he's going to grow our church to 500,000 people tomorrow. Okay? That'd be great. (laughs) Maybe it wouldn't, I don't know, $500,000, dollars i don't know how to do, huh? <laughs> um, but, here, but the point here is that, work, that, that this is what he did when he broke the curse. God became a man and he worked. By the Spirit of the Lord, he proclaimed good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and he set at liberty those who are oppressed, and he proclaimed to them the year of the Lord's favor and grace. By the sweat of his brow, Jesus worked. He toiled. Jesus struggled to bring the gospel of the kingdom into this world. Luke 22, verse 44, even says that he sweat blood. No man has ever worked as hard as Jesus. And the fruit of his labors, what were the fruit of his labors? Thorns and thistles. The very symbol of the curse of man was placed upon his head in the crown of thorns. He was crowned with the curse and crucified. And yet, by his wounds, we are healed. He broke the curse, and his labor did indeed produce fruit. He was successful. Where we couldn't, he succeeded. He has the victory. Therefore, we now operate not for victory, but from victory in him. He has that victory. Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not in this. We're here. We're in him. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Sound familiar? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We don't live here. We live here. We live here. Because of Christ, our work, our labors, our toiling, our striving does in fact produce fruit, and it's all acceptable to God. It's pleasing to Him, because it's from Him. Even when it feels frustrated in this life, our faithfulness and obedience to Him draws us closer to Him, and it brings Him glory. His victory on the cross and breaking of the curse wasn't so you could be victorious in everything you build in your own kingdoms. That's just going back to slavery. That's going back to Egypt kind of stuff, right? Like that's just going back to the tormenting slavery of the pride-shame spectrum. Like if it's about you and your own glory and our own vanity, then it's worthless. But that which is done for him and from him and in him remains forever. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Because of Christ, we're not just dust and ashes. That's why when I go to a funeral and somebody's like, ah, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, I'm like, not if they're a Christian. You will not hear me proclaim that over a grave site. You know why? You're more than just ashes and dust. The Spirit of God lives in you. And there is resurrection. This is vanity, ashes, and dust. This is glory. And It's his. This is what motivates Paul. This is the jet fuel that inspires him to toil and struggle. Christ in him, the hope of glory. And there's rest in that race. There's restoration there. Not so he'll be accepted, but because he already is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Anybody remember? I, I promise, I'm closing. we we'll going to get out of here one day. Chariots of Fire. You remember this movie? Anybody remember this movie? Eric Liddell is a really old movie based on Eric Liddell Um, his story is in the Olympics he was an Olympic runner who refused to run in the Paris Olympics because the race was um, on a Sunday he was favored to win it but he wouldn't do it right and and he realized that he couldn't bring God glory when running on that Sunday like that wasn't about him his motivation was God's glory Here's how he put it in the movie. He says this, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Listen, what was that? I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Running wasn't his purpose. It was simply one way he could please God. That was his motivation to run. It was the glory of God. Liddell's top competitor was a man though named Harold Abrahams, a man who was extremely fast also, but listen to the way he describes his obsession with running. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with only ten seconds to justify my whole existence. Is this how you live your life? Running was all about himself. Running was his salvation. The need to be the best. The need to justify his own existence. To attain glory for himself. If he won, pride. If he failed, shame. That's a toxic and tormented way to live. It's a cursed way to live. Jesus offers something better. No, Jesus offers someone better. Himself. This is grace. This is the gospel. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that works so powerfully within me. He wants everyone to know what he knows and the way he knows him. So what motivates you? Where is your hope? Is it in yourself or is it in Christ? When you work, when you labor, is it an offering of worship in response to his glory or is it an effort to justify your existence? Can you rest in him? Talk to him, walk with him, be at peace with him. Christ in you, he's in you. Rest in that and then run with that. Let's pray.